Love Talk Radio. everything we do 
Marsha has also, and we will compare and put that in perspective as well, Marsha also has spoken up for people at other agencies. She's demonstrated and spoken up for black farmers and employees and abused women at USDA. Marsha has been a champion of civil rights in the real sense, in the real sense, taking time from her children and her family to care about others. You don't find that too much in this day and time because we are spending a whole lot of time thinking about others. I, I can't remember when Dr. Uh, Adebayo got her doctor degree because I always knew her at Marsha, and she will probably be able to clarify uh, when that was as she speaks. But Marsha is also involved in something that's very closely related to what we are doing about civil rights at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the racism and sexism, who, by the way, again, I'll say, many of the demonstrations in front of the USDA, she was there, her and Tanya Ward-Jordan. She was there, and she spoke, and she put in time, and she supported us. She supported the women, and she's always supported the farmers. Her career has taken her and her proactivity has taken her to another height. Marsha is now involved in something that I'm going to let her explain. And I'm talking about the consecration and the, uh, the demolition of a grave site in Bethesda, Maryland. Here's a woman who could be retired and doing nothing. And Dr. Adebayo has spent time caring about what happens to this cemetery. Why is this cemetery being desecrated? How does land tie in with what is going on at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Black Farmers? But you'll probably also tie in why her character and what they did to her has something to do with why they, she cares for others. I will stop now, but I want to say thank you, Dr. Coleman, out of Marsha Coleman out of Bayou tonight for coming on. And I'd like for you to tell us uh, how this all started. Why are you still in this game of justice, transparency, mm -hmm. accountability. Mm -hmm. Dr. Marsha Adebayo, thank mm -hmm. you for coming on and be all means to get started. And uh, we'll ask questions as we roll on and you can stop wherever you want to and ask me a question as well. This is gonna be a conversation. Thank you, mm -hmm. Dr. Marsha Adebayo. Yeah, thank you so much, and I, I agree. Let's just uh, dispense with formalities and just use first names because that's that's what we're used to doing, and um, and and it's important because you're right. I mean, when you're engaged in struggle, um, relationships are extremely important, 
And um, and so I'm very, very privileged, very honored to be on the show tonight. I'm particularly honored to be on the show with you, Lawrence, um, because you're one of my heroes, as you know. Um, I saw the way you and your colleagues at the Department of Agriculture struggled, um, not only for the employees at USDA, but also for the black farmers who were being dismissed and sidelined and erased, quite frankly, from American history. Not even just their land. They were being erased from American history altogether. And, and it was an inspiration, quite frankly, for us because your movement started before the No Fear movement started. And we studied what you guys were doing, um, and we wanted to, to make sure that we incorporated, um, a, you know, aspects of your struggle in the struggle for the passage of the first civil rights and whistleblower law of the 21st century, which is the notification of federal employees anti-discrimination and retaliation act of 2002. So we studied the struggle at USDA. And then, of course, you're right, we were joined by Department of Commerce, Department of Defense, and before you knew it, we had a U.S. government coalition of federal employees. But not all the various agencies were engaged in the kind of struggle that you were engaged in at USDA where you reached out to black farmers and you brought them into the process. And so that was very admirable. And that's what we wanted to do with the No Fear Act, is to reach out to whistleblowers and bring them back into the process. So, so thank you so much for the, for the example, the examples that you set for all of us. And, and that's what political struggle is all about. We learn from each other. We learn from the success. We learn from the failures. We learn from when people are just sort of, you know, marching in place and not really going anywhere, and and we take those lessons and we and we and we basically generate new struggles to deal with our oppression. So the question that you asked me is, where does this passion for justice come from? And um, you know, I think, you know, if I'm going to be totally honest, I think it probably comes from watching my grandmother in the Deep South fight um, the Ku Klux Klan. My grandmother was a leader in her small southern village, um, and she was the one that organized the, against the Ku Klux Klan. And, and I would go visit her every summer, and it was always, um, for me, I enjoyed, you know, going to visit my grandparents in the South, and I didn't quite understand a lot of what I was seeing. But my grandmother was very engaged. Um, she had a sawed-off shotgun by her front door. And she would always tell me, if any of those pointy-head people try to come into my house, this will be the last house they will see. And my grandmother was totally serious about that. And I had to wear like a little name tag around my neck uh, which gave instructions to how to get me back home to Detroit in case something happened to my grandmother. And there were many nights when my grandmother was called from the community to go see 
about something that the Klan had done in our community. And she had made like a little bed that I could sleep under that would go under her bed. And I would sleep under there until she came home. So I guess from the very beginning of my life, I saw someone really struggling for freedom. And I admired my grandmother. I admired um, her courage. So I think that's sort of like my genesis starts there. Um, My grandfather on my mother's side was one of the ministers who brought Dr. King to Detroit uh, to speak at Cobo Hall, where he gave the first iteration of the I Have a Dream speech. And so there were always Jet magazines on the table and, and Ebony, and there was always conversation around the dinner table about what was happening in Alabama and Mississippi, and my family originally came from Georgia. So I think that that's sort of the genesis for me, and I just grew up believing that we could win, that if we struggled, we could win. And I kept seeing it over and over again um, throughout my lifetime. And then when I got to EPA, of course, the racism and the sexism was so um, dense that there were just things that were just set in place, you know, where black people just didn't even think about dreaming past a certain grade point. And since I didn't start in the federal government, I came in when my career, I was fairly senior when I came into the EPA. I just wasn't used to that kind of in-your-face racism. And so I decided to use all the lessons I had learned all my life and to organize within EPA. And and I think we, we, we experienced um, some substantial success. Oh, thank you. Uh, okay. Marcia, thank you so very much. And uh, I would like to ask you another question. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, I've been participating from time to time, and I'm sorry that I have not been able to participate more in the struggle that's going on in Bethesda. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a gravesite. Right. Uh, explain to us, uh, because he, here you are with all this government background mm-hmm. and could be retired and relaxing, and here you are week after week, day after day, demonstrations going to Congress people's offices and standing up and demonstrating and putting a community together to make sure that they care about what's going on at Moses African Cemetery in Bethesda. I would like for you, because you, you've got so much diversity here to talk about, and we'll get to the books later, but mm-hmm. I think the struggle, uh, and I want you to explain why you got into this struggle and how does that struggle tie in with, what uh, we were, we are doing for black farmers, please. Mm, that's a really, really interesting question. It's because it's so layered. You're right. It's so layered. I mean, I think we all bring our experiences, our passions forward with us. And, um, and so one of my passions, of course, as you know, is fighting for justice. I absolutely love the process and the, and the fellowship and the community of people who are passionate about um, fighting for freedom and who refuse 
to accept second-class citizenship. And, um, and those are really the only people I want to be around, to be honest with you, because I find it just draining to be around people who feel like there's nothing they can do and they have to accept uh, whatever the society imposes upon them. So, um, you know, the story with the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition is a really interesting story because my husband becomes pastor of this black church in Bethesda. We had no idea about the history of this church. When we moved to Bethesda, I moved here because I had a teaching position at the American University, and it was a bedroom community of Washington, D.C. And then we were looking for a little church, and we saw this church in the middle, sort of nowhere in Bethesda, and every Sunday, all these black people would just magically appear in Bethesda. And so, you know, we decided to go there and just see if that was a church that would meet our needs. And we go there and we do it. My husband quickly began to um, rise to the ranks. And my husband, you know, he was, you know, he was very eager to play a part in the church and became a deacon and then assistant pastor, and then he was ordained pastor of the church. And so then I become a first lady um, unexpectedly. And so that's sort of how we enter this story, is that we are representing this little black church that we, knew, that we did not know any of the history, and no one ever talked about the history. Like, how is it that all of these black people know about this little church in Bethesda, but they don't live here. And I, and I assumed on one level it was because of gentrification that the property taxes had risen so high that they couldn't afford to continue to stay here. But nobody really talked about it. And I went to a meeting. My first job, my first duty as first lady of Macedonia Baptist Church was to go to this meeting at the planning board Uh, Montgomery County Planning Board. And to be honest with you, Lawrence, I didn't know what a planning board did. I mean, as you know, I was in the international office of EPA. So I'm very sort of overseas oriented. And I didn't really know what a domestic planning board did. And so I'm in this room full of these, you know, um, people, and they're talking about how they need for me to sign off on a sector plan that says that they've told me about A, B, and C, and, and, um, and that, you know, there was this rumor that I should be very careful about believing that there was a black cemetery very close to our church and that it was just simply a rumor. I should not pay any attention. And just please, just sign on the dotted line. Well, you know, I had been in the federal government for 18 years. And I knew that that didn't sound right to me. And I knew that you don't call people into a meeting and then just ask them to start signing papers without, you know, a briefing and, and, and some paperwork and providing an opportunity for them to, you know, digest it. So I just, everything, there was just red flags um, being, you know, um, thrown in the air And that's what's interesting about our background, because it's almost as though God just prepares us for certain places to be, right? Because I had federal government work experience, and because I had struggled around no fear, and now I'm sitting at this room, and these these people are telling me to sign papers that I haven't read, I just said, you know, 
No, you know, I'm not signing papers that I don't understand. And I don't understand what you're talking about in terms of a, a cemetery that supposedly doesn't exist. And then there was this man sitting next to me named Harvey Matthews that a lot of your listeners now will will recognize his name. And he raises his hand very politely. And this woman, the woman who was director at that point in time was, was Gwen Wright. And he goes, Ms. Wright, you know, you said that it's an alleged cemetery. That's not true. I used to play in that cemetery as a child because in Montgomery County, Montgomery County was segregated. So black kids could not go to the parks. And so the cemetery became our playground. So I know every inch of that cemetery, and I know what happened to it. But when I heard him say that, I had heard EPA lie so much. I had heard officials at USDA, Department of Commerce, you name it. I had seen all of them tell incredible lies about our conditions within the federal government. And I looked around the room, and all these people were, like, looking at each other like, oh, no, where did he come from? And I looked at her and I said, you told me it was an alleged cemetery. Now my colleague is telling me he used to play in the cemetery. I said, where are the members of our church who were buried in that cemetery? And she looked at me and she said, I really don't know where they're at. I said, well, then we have a crime. Then we have a crime scene, don't we? You should be talking to the police and not trying to get me to falsify information on these documents. And that is really how this whole thing started. It wasn't that I was so enthusiastic about fighting for a black cemetery. I just can't stand liars. I cannot stand to be around liars. And I can't stand to be around people who want to treat black people as though we're fools. And that really just, it it infuriated me that for the last 70 years, these people had taken the community that my husband and I had agreed to provide some leadership in terms of Macedonia family, that they had taken them, you know, that they had mistreated them, that they had abused them, that they had treated them as though they were less than human beings. And for the first time, they came in contact with someone who could talk back to them, and they folded like cards. And I was, I, was, I was amazed, quite frankly. And so then I mentioned that I wanted to bring in a very esteemed archaeologist named Dr. Michael Blakey, who many people will recognize because he was the director of science for the New York Burial Ground Project, and who NIS, to bring him in to do the archaeological work. And they said, oh, no, we have our own people. And I said, well, that just simply will not do. I want the best, and I want Dr. Michael Blakey. And they basically said, okay, I think this meeting is over. Um, You know, we'll call you in a couple weeks, and we'll try to reschedule. And that was how the first meeting ended. And so it had, to me, less to do with cemeteries as it did with the fact that I understood from the very beginning that this was a struggle for land. I had been around the USDA struggle. I had been around you, Lawrence. I understood that the land that they were talking about was what they they were calling the alleged cemetery was some of the most expensive real estate on the planet Earth. I understood. I mean, 
you know, it was it didn't take a long time for me to figure out these guys are not fighting over, you know, some back alley somewhere. They're fighting about land in downtown Bethesda, Maryland, and that they wanted me to sign off on paper so that their development developer friends and their political friends could make a killing on land that contained the bodies of enslaved Africans, women and children. That's what they wanted me to do. And quite frankly, I was insulted and I was angry that they would even ask, you know, some the first lady of a church, the church, to even participate in our own oppression. So, so once I understood exactly what these people were up to, that this was going to be a bit, they were trying to initiate a big land grab. And the land that we're talking about, where the cemetery is located, is worth approximately $100 million. I just want people to know the figures that we're dealing with here. That, you know, our ancestors are buried in some of the most expensive soil on the planet. And their goal has been for the last eight years that we've engaged in a struggle um, to do everything in their, in their power to try to sidestep um, us, to try to, to um, um, compromise our integrity, to try to lie to us in such a way that we think we're getting something. I mean, they've, they've pulled out all the stops, but the reality is that this is about land. And all the cemetery struggles, almost all the cemetery struggles, whether they're in Tampa, whether they're in Atlanta, whether they're in Baltimore, these are struggles for land. And and even though, you know, we want to sort of the picture is of the cemetery itself, but why are they struggling for cemetery? Once, they, once the developers are able to steal the land from the community, they basically, you know, tear down all the tombstones, they disinter the people, and then they put up high-rises or they put up an apartment building or some kind of shopping center. This is a struggle about land. And so the black community has to be very clear about that. Wow. That, uh, thank you so very much with the clarity. Uh, the one thing that uh, while you were going through this struggle, um, I know that you have contacted um, some congressional offices, and I think there's a quote by one someone who said something about why uh, why do you care. Um, kind of give me an idea uh, as to uh, in this struggle, while you are struggling to try to get justice, I want mm-hmm. you to uh, tell me, uh, first, tell me, um, uh, Marsha, tell me what happened to the person that owned, just quickly, who owned that land and where is he today? Well, the, the land is, which, which, part, which land? I mean, the land is divided into three parts. But one of the things I wanted to talk about in terms of Brother Harvey is that the yes. land that his family owned is now owned by Amazon. And they, as quiet as it's kept, because they don't like to advertise this, Bethesda, Maryland was a hotbed of KKK activity in the 1950s, early 60s. And the KKK used to march up and down 
the main road, River Road. As, as Harvey Matthews will tell you, they were police officers in the daytime, and they, had, they brought out their white sheets at night. So they would march up and down River Road three or four times uh, targeting black families. His family was targeted, and they wanted his land, which is now where if you go to Whole Foods, that's the Harvey Matthews homestead. And, and his father kept refusing to put his ex on a paper um, to, 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 give his, to, to give his home away. And then one day the KKK came after they became frustrated with him, pulled him out of the house, pulled his grandfather out of the house, and nearly beat them both to death. Well, that still wasn't enough for Brother Harvey Matthews and his, grand, and his uh, grandfather to turn the house over because black people had worked on the land. They understood the value of the land, and they knew that it's often the land that makes the difference between whether they're going to starve or whether they're going to be able to feed their families. And so they were very in tune with, with the intergenerational um, concepts of land that you, you know, you get a piece of land, you, you know, you, you bequeath that land to your children and the land appreciates. It's the only thing, quite frankly, that really appreciates in the society. And if, and if, if you don't have land, then you're always subject to being an employee of someone who owns land. So land is very important. Our forefathers understood the importance of land and they were not going to be driven off of the land uh, not even under the terror of, of the KKK. But what happened to Brother Harvey's family was is very interesting because on one of those visits, the KKK didn't just beat him to death, almost to death in front of the family. They actually put him in back of the, of the truck and they took him to an undisclosed location. They kidnapped him and they kept him there for a couple of days. And that's where, you know, eventually he did assign his ex to the, paper but the kkk told him you know you will let you now since we own the land we'll let you stay there as long as you want to um but of course it's the kkk they don't tell the truth so the following week they came and they forced the family to leave and they became refugees and they had to find members to to live with so so these are some of the stories that we've now gathered around this incredible community on River Road. Another story is um, on the River Road area, the, the two, two stories, and then we'll go back to the other question you asked me, is that this is an area where there's a lot of stone quarries. And they, they, there are a lot of, you know, um, uh, quarries in this area. And there's, there's some particular stones that come out of this area. Um, and the White House um, found out in around I mean, the 1930s about this incredible black community where there were all these stonemasons. And so every week they would send um, a horse and buggy or whatever to the community. As it turns out, it's this community that we live in that the bodies are now being desecrated that actually built the, the bunkers under the White House. They built the bunker under the White House. It is wow. their bodies that the developers are digging up, chopping into little pieces, and sending to a landfill. I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing story. And then also because we're about maybe 20, 30 miles from Washington, D.C., 
um, the women, when they were um, about to give birth, they would always try to leave in enough time so they could get the Freedmen's Hospital that we call now Howard University Hospital uh, so that they could have their children at the hospital. As it turns out, a lot of the women didn't make it, and some of the babies didn't make it because life happens. Um, and so this is the community that organized a fund drive that, that, that raised enough money so that they could build a colored wing onto, into suburban high, hospital, um, which is not too far from here. Most people don't even know the history of, of how this small little wing of a hospital was built. And as it turns out, Harvey Matthews, whose father, you know, was the victim of KKK and who, was play, who played in the black cemetery, he was the first baby to be born in the colored wing of suburban hospital. So this is an amazing community with an amazing history. And Montgomery County made the decision that they were going to erase every line of their history, not just the cemetery, but even the history of how they built schools and how they had midwifery and businesses. All of that had to be destroyed on the altar of white supremacy. And so we've written three books now about this community, and we're about to give birth now to a fourth book about this community. But it's an amazing community. And the Africans who were, who were brought here, the first generation of Africans who were brought here, um, they suffered a great deal. Obviously, they were forced into tobacco production. And they were tortured and they were murdered. And their bodies were thrown in this place we call Moses Cemetery. And then in 1807, there was a confluence between the ending of what they call the transatlantic slave trade that we just call European barbarism, because that's really what this trade was about. It was just a human trafficking trade. Um, and, and at the same time, the soils, the, you know, tobacco is very hard on the soil. And so the soils stopped yielding um, tobacco. And so you have this confluence where, you know, they're not getting, the, the planters are no longer able to get the, the quantity of, of Africa, the kidnapped people coming from Africa, and at the same time, the soils are depleting. So they had to find a new industry so that they could continue to increase their wealth. And they decided that they were going to breed young children, young girls in particular, and so they started, so this is a part of the sexual uh, exploitation area as well, where they started literally breeding little teeny girls because there was a theory that the earlier girls became sexually active, the quicker the menses would start. And so now we've, we're at the point of looking at research where they were literally renting out little five-year-old girls on the weekends as party favors. And um, and it's just a horrific story of how they use the bodies of these little girls. Um, they believed that every little girl they bought should be able to produce between 13 and 15 children. So for them, this was a this was a business model. The problem wow. was that these little girls died in in large numbers 
60% of these little girls would die, would bleed out during childbirth. And, and, and their bodies would be thrown in a cemetery called Moses Cemetery. Wow. Um, in terms of the children, um, there was a huge mortality rate with children. 60% of all the children, and the majority of, of people, children who, come, who, are, who survived the traffic from Africa to the West, are children. They're children. And 60%, and we don't usually think about, quote, unquote, the slave trade as a children's trade, but we need to begin to think about this as a children's trade. Um, and 60% of these children would die before they reached the age of 10. So this was mass murder. This was mass murder on a scale that the world has never seen before. And when those children would die, their bodies would be thrown in a cemetery or a dumping ground that we now call Moses Cemetery. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, Marsha, I thank you for the the clarity. And I think our listening public has really gotten a real good education about what is really going on. But I also want you to explain to us based on some of the conversations and that I've been able to uh, listen to doing you all's uh, uh, sessions in the evening and planning sessions. Where, where are our leaders? Uh, you going through this struggle. Um, kind of tell us about, because uh, we're having the same problem with our, our black leadership uh, and, and other congressional leadership. Uh, can you describe to us what is happening on uh, some of the comments that have been made and some of the lack of support that uh, you have not been able to get from uh, our, our black leadership? Yeah. Well, it was, it's very similar to when we were all fighting for the No Fear Act. We ran into the same problem, didn't we, um, with black leadership or lack thereof. Um, so, yeah, so uh, the first comment that you made before you asked me this question was a comment that I received from David Crone, who is running for U.S. Senate. He's now a congressman in, in Maryland, and I met him at a black history program, and I was trying to give him a leaflet about the Moses Cemetery, and he looked at it, and he said, nobody cares about this cemetery. You know, and, and when he first said it, I thought, no, I couldn't have heard that. And I, when I spoke to my sister-in-law who was with me, and I went back to him and I said, excuse me, what did you just say to me? And he said, nobody cares about that little cemetery. Because for white people, black people are not really human. I mean, you, it's hard for us to get to that point where we understand that there are people who look at us as being subhuman. You know, you know we, don't, we don't value our ancestors the way, you know, white people value their family lines and their lineage. That's, you know, we're just sort of birthed, we're born, and then we just sort of, you know, muddle around, I suppose, and then we make ourselves useful to white people while we're alive, and then when we're dead, they dig us up and and send us to landfills, and then they put a, a, you you know, a highway on top of us. 
for them, that's the natural course of events, that we don't have the same kind of, uh, we don't acknowledge where we came from. We don't acknowledge the, the sacrifice that our moms and dads and our grandparents made for us. For us, we put them in the ground and we just forget about them. You know, you know they, they mean nothing. So that's their concept of us. Um, they're very much like a dog or any other kind of animal. Um, you know, we, we don't look back once we bury something. We just bury it and keep going. So, so, so that was what he was saying to me. Who cares about Harriet Tubman? Who cares about your grandmother? Whatever. And so we started a petition, and I would ask all of your listeners to please go to our petition. Um, and all you have to do is just write in David Trone, who cares about that little cemetery, and a petition will come up. And we're asking everyone to sign it. I think we're at about 400 right now, 400 signatures right now. So we should be at around 500 next week. And interestingly enough, his office called. Um, I was expecting it uh, when they found out about the petition. And as you know, David Schoen is like one of the richest men in this country. He's a billionaire, made his fortune off of selling liquor, primarily, I assume, in the black community. Um, and, you know, now he's running for the U.S. Senate. And, and so, you know, he's got all the money in the world, and now he wants power by being a U.S. senator. And if you look at his commercials, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, his commercials are on TV every two minutes, and he's got all these black politicians singing his praise. Um, but, you know, um, you know, he's a billionaire, so he's able to write a lot of checks. And and I, so they called us and said, you know, we want you to come in to talk to us. We understand you got a petition. And I said, you know, we'll talk, but we'll only talk to Mr. Trone. Oh, no, 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 we want you to come in and talk to um, some black person in their office. And I said, no, 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 no. We will talk to Mr. Trone, but we're, or not, we're not talking to anyone at all. I mean, that's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, why are we going in and talking to a mouthpiece? when we can talk to the person who offended us. Um, and so that's where we left that at this point. But, um, you know, uh, we have not found very many politicians that, you know, are prepared to really speak out against the desecration of these burial grounds. And that is because we are dealing with the issue of land we're dealing with the fundamentals of capitalism, and that is that land is the most important and valuable asset in a capitalist society. And a lot of the developers, you know, provide a great deal of money to politicians for their campaigns. And so to talk about or against desecration is to basically, you know, cut off your future as a politician. So, so very few politicians will come out. In fact, two weeks ago, we sent letters to Congressman Jamie Raskin of the January 6th, you know, hearing fame, you know, uh, asking him just to denounce, I mean, just to denounce desecration, to denounce, you know, our cemetery was flooded three weeks ago by the developer in collusion with Montgomery County. So our, our cemetery right now is underwater. And so we asked Congressman Raskin 
to denounce the flooding, the intentional flooding of a cemetery, a black cemetery. You know, he wouldn't do it. He would not, he would not denounce the flooding of a black cemetery. And this is the same man that when he spoke at the NAACP six months ago, received three standing ovations. Three standing ovations. Wow. You're kidding. Wow. Well, our community is just, you know, we're so engaged in all the hype and what we see on television. And yet these politicians are, quite frankly, just making fools of us. So, you know, so one of the primary goals of BACC is to educate the community so that we, you know, we stop supporting politicians who do not support our community and who just come in and use us and then throw us away when we become an inconvenience. Thank you so very much. Um, Marsha, tell me something. We hear a lot about reparations, and I want to know uh, how does reparation feed into this? And we also hear a lot from the politicians, and and you can't uh, turn on TV without hearing the word uh, equity. And they throw this word around uh, like uh, – like it is supposed to mean something to them, and we're finding out from what's going on at USDA, the sexual abuse, the discrimination against employees, um, and, and, and what's going on with farmers in this day and time. We hear all these politicians talking about reparations. Then you have another group uh, around the country who are talking about reparations. Mm-hmm. Where is there a connection here at all? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Africans in this country are one of the few groups that have that have suffered a little bit the way we've suffered. That have not received reparations. I mean, the Japanese have received. I mean, a number of groups have received reparations for, um, you know, for 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 being violated and murdered and raped and. And, I mean, we are all the survivors of genocide. We're the survivors of genocide. And they've tried to sort of keep that kind of consciousness out of our minds, that we, we survived genocide. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, if I go back to the Harvey Matthews story again, this is a good example of, of why we deserve. His, father, his family had suffered the... The, the barbaric, you know, um, system of white supremacy, which they like to call slavery. And, and, and then on top of it, they build a big farm, and they're sort of trying to rebuild their lives. And then the Europeans see the work that they're doing and say, you know, we want all of this land. We want everything, and we're not going to pay for it. You leave with your life. That's your payment, is that we're not going to kill you. And that's basically the only thing that Harvey Matthews' family leaves with. It's just their lives. They have to start all over again. No intergenerational wealth, even though that plot of land that belonged to Harvey Matthews' family is now worth about $30 million. And Harvey Matthews has had to do, you know, you know, um, you know, uh, lawn work and other kinds of jobs 
in order to put food on the table when his family had already created the basis of their wealth when they bought the land on River Road. So now you've got two or three generations and have never recovered from what the Ku Klux Klan did in the 19th. We must have reparations for all of the Africans who were murdered. We must have reparations for all the black girls who suffered rape which became, you know, sort of the the, 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 the the traumatic moment of their lives when, when everything stopped for them and their lives were totally stolen. You know, we must have reparations for all the land that was stolen from us, from all of the so, – so for me, there is no difference between the cemetery struggle here in Bethesda and the fight for reparations. In fact, we have our own reparations documents. And we've got over, I think, about 50 organizations have signed on to it now. We're very serious about reparations because if you're serious about liberation, you have to be serious about reparations. And so, so it's, it's one of the basic core values that we have in our group is that we are fighting to repair and, in fact, to liberate black people from economic economic from being a constant economic underclass because the money is there. It's just that the money has been stolen from us, and we're demanding that they, they, that they return the money and the land because our major, our major struggle around what is called the cemetery land is that we're not asking for a plaque. We're not asking for a bench. We're not asking for pretty sidewalks. We want the land. We're, we're struggling for the land. And that land is to be used to tell the story of what happened to, to black people in this country and what happened to, to the Africans who came here for the first generation because our history does not start in the United States. Our history starts in Africa. So almost all of our literature starts in Africa. And then we talk about what happened when we, when we came over the ocean. Um, so... So, so we've had the, we've had the same issues along with you with black politicians. Okay. And and so we just continue to struggle, and we continue to tell the truth because that's the most important thing we can do. Is always tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell yes. the truth because the Bible says truth crushed to the ground will rise, and that's been our experience. Is that if we have the courage to tell the truth. Then, then even if it's not received immediately, five, ten years down the road, people will say, "Isn't that what they said ten years ago?" So it's important that you that you that you that you really plug into the truth, and that you don't allow people um, to to cheat you out of just being very clear about your history and the struggle that you're engaged in. Marcia, thank. Marcia and Lawrence. Um, there is someone on the line that has their yes. line open. See if C.J. Johnson is on to uh, possibly ask uh, a question of uh, uh, Dr. Adebayo. Is, um, so, yeah, let's go I through the question. And, and, and Marsha, I want to thank you. Uh, I know I'm holding you much longer than we had planned, but uh, – Please bear with us for a little while longer because I think we may have some people on the line that may want to ask you some questions as well. I appreciate sure. it. Thank you. 
Thank you. 615, would you like to speak? Hello? Yes. Would you speak? Would you, do you have a question? What about uh, number 240, uh, area code? Is that person on, still on the line? Uh, I have 240-731. Marcia, is that you? That's Marcia. Uh, I'm talking about C.J. Johnson on 240-640-0089. Do not okay. have him on the line. Okay. I who, have one. Uh, who else? Do we, who else do we have? Yes. Um, let me ask someone else. Six oh eight. Do you have a question? I believe that's cause. Hey, Marcel. Hey, cause. I've been listening here in, um, on and off while I've been baking, and uh, I mean, my heart is broken hearing this. I grew up in Montgomery County. I'm guessing this is Montgomery County, Maryland. Yeah. That you guys are. Yeah, I lived there until I was like 14 years old. So I was, I was wondering where is the cemetery located in Maryland, or was located. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the 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 cemetery is downtown Bethesda. So uh, River, if you go to, if you take River Road going towards Potomac, um, it's okay. about maybe 15 minutes from the DC line, from the DC border. Um, wow. You'll see Whole, Whole Foods if you're familiar with this area, Whole Foods, McDonald's. Um, that's all the area of the cemetery. Um, and but the cemetery itself is located. Interestingly enough, because it's a children's cemetery, but it's it's located right next to McDonald's on River Road. Oh my Road. gosh! Mm-hmm. All right, I was in Silver Spring, so it was a little. It wasn't right there. I'm just. I I appreciate your advocacy on this, and I look forward to signing the petition. Oh, and thank you so much. Absolutely, I hope that Marcel will help me find the link and then I can get it shared. And I just appreciate everything that you've done. And this has been an eye-opening podcast. And thank you so much for coming on and just being an advocate for those. They're, they're gone and their story needs to be told. And shame on the United States. So many things that we talk about on this podcast, shame on our country for the crimes against humanity that are yes. committed in so many different areas and aspects of our lives. And right. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Marcel. Thank you, Marcia. Um, I'll let you guys finish up and I'll put myself back on mute. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what about uh, 202? Um Hold on. Uh, what about uh, what about two hundred two six three zero Gary Johnson, um, Marcel? No, I don't have 
I have a 402. 402, you have a four? would you like? Okay. Yes, I would. Okay, please. Can you hear me? Yes, yes I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yes, I just called the number because I have a different issue. I sometimes call this 917 a guardianship issue, but it is so heartrending to hear this lady's issue. Um, my issue is a husband who's being overdrugged and isolated in a nursing home. But I feel there's a lot of similarities in the way they treat um, the way they treat people, and I don't mean just black people or white people, the way certain higher-ups treat everyone. And I'm very concerned my husband has developed tremendous shaking and Parkinson's from the mm -hmm. overdrugging. And I was just calling, and I know that's not the subject you're on, if anyone had any advice about that. Marcel? No, this is still the other lady, or should I press one? Okay, uh, Marcel, uh, do we have uh, any others uh, that are interested in calling, calling in? Um, I think uh, Mr. Johnson um, on, well, you probably get him on, uh, let me see what we got here. Um, two o two four zero. That was uh, C J Johnson, and uh, we also have a, a uh, Gary Johnson on three o one eight one four. Do you see him, Marcel? I don't know where she went. Hello? Hello? Uh, Marcel? Marcel? I may have to call back in. I think you were, I think you must have been over. Hello? Hello? I'm sorry. For some reason, we were knocked off the line. I just got us back up. Marcia, are you still here? Oh, no, no, I'm still here, although I have another. Hello, Saver. Whether you're saving for that trip to the tropics or saving for an emergency, now is the time to take advantage of Wells Fargo's savings options. Wells Fargo offers savings accounts that can help you save towards your goals. So, what are you saving for? Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com save to open a savings account today. Wells Fargo Bank N.A. Member FDIC.